BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. I think the thing that is most threatening to us, not only something that is deliberately released, by a bad actor, either a state or an individual working alone, would be something that can spread widely, and that's generally a respiratory infection, and something that has a high degree of morbidity and mortality. Welcome to Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morell. Because of the coronavirus outbreak, we here at Intelligence Matters are trying to do our part at social distancing, and we are not taping in the studio for the time being. We are working on remote taping options, and in the meantime, we're going to bring you what you, based on your feedback, have considered to be our best of episodes. For each of those, we will add some commentary to keep it fresh and up to date. This week, we are reaching back in our archive to an episode we released on September 25th, 2018, with a man who is now a household name in our country, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease at the National Institutes of Health. I asked Dr. Fauci to come on the show back in 2018 because of my deep concern about the threat posed to our society by either a naturally occurring or by a man-made pathogen. I think you will find the conversation interesting from a perspective of who Dr. Fauci is as a person, as well as how he foreshadowed two years ago what we are seeing today. We'll be right back with that episode after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Dr. Fauci, thank you for joining us today. It is great to have you on the show. We usually see each other for just a few minutes in the green room here at CBS before going on Face the Nation. And so I'm glad to be able to spend some time with you uh, talking about the very important issues on which you work. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Let me start by saying that in preparation for the podcast, I read your bio and wow. Let me just mention a couple of the things that jumped out at me. Seminal contributions to HIV AIDS research key role in President Bush's emergency plans for AIDS relief, commonly referred to as PEPFAR, which has saved literally millions of lives, recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest honor given to a civilian by the President of the United States, 
recipient of 43 honorary degrees from universities in the U.S. and abroad, author, co-author, or editor of more than 1,300 scientific publications, including several textbooks, and many, many other things. So like I said, when I read all that, I said, wow. But the question that jumped out at me when I read that was a question that I'm sure you get a lot, particularly from young people, which is, what do you attribute your success to, right? What's the secret to being successful at this profession or any other profession? What do you, what do you tell kids when they ask you that? Well, I tell them to pursue, and I think the important part of your question is any other profession, because it isn't just medicine and science, to pursue what you're passionate about, something that really drives you, that you really want to do, Get as much training in that area as you possibly can get through various educational institutions. For me, it was in medicine and science. And then keep your eyes and ears open for opportunities. Opportunities, and I tell people that you can try and plan the course of what your professional life will be, but more often than not, particularly when you're dealing in an arena that I am in with infectious diseases and outbreaks, that things come your way unexpectedly, unanticipated, and if you're prepared to jump on it and do something about it, that really leads to, well, you may say success, but it's more deep involvement. Whether you're successful or not often is the luck of the draw. It has a lot to do with how good you are, but also it has to do with the right place, the right time, and interacting with the right people. That was exactly what happened when I first got involved with HIV AIDS, because I recognized very early that this was going to be an enormous global problem. And many people didn't think that. And there was a, a pushback and an inertia in getting involved early on back in the early 80s. And that was one of the things that I was able to do was to try and galvanize successfully support and involvement in that. And then other things came along after that. So how did you get involved in this work? How did you end up in this profession? And how did you end up at NIH? Well, you know, medicine for me was kind of an interesting consolidation of two different interests. I come from a liberal arts humanitarian training. I was trained for many years by the Jesuits. I went to a Jesuit. That's your secret. That's my secret. That's your secret. That's my secret. I went to high school in New York City in a Jesuit school, Regis High School. I went to a Jesuit college. And, And one of the things that was very inherent in what it was, was one service to others. Service is, is something that is, is sort of built into what you should at least strive for. Not everybody can go into public service, but so, service in some respect. But I took a liberal arts course. I did a classics major, uh, you know, Latin, Greek, Romance languages, and I took just enough science to be able to get into medical school. And as it turned out, that training, that deep training in the humanities, together with science, put those two together. And to me, medicine and health and service at a global level almost was a natural evolution of what my training was. So I came to the NIH to train in infectious diseases and immunology because that's the premier place, the largest research institution in the world. And then I got a lot of good clinical training before I went there. So I was what people call a physician scientist, someone who remains taking care of people, understanding disease, but at the same time doing science. And I've been doing that, you know, for the last 34 years. Let me start the substantive portion of our conversation by asking you to react to something. In his worldwide threat testimony from earlier this year, Dan Coates, 
the director of national intelligence, told Congress that the major threats to the United States include, and let me quote, a novel strain of a virulent microbe that is easily transmissible between humans, end quote. Do you agree with that? I think the thing that is most threatening to us, not only something that is deliberately released by a bad actor, either a state or an individual working alone, would be something just as was described by by Coates. And that is something that can spread widely, and that's generally a respiratory infection, and something that has a high degree of morbidity and mortality. That can occur. What's morbidity? Morbidity means making you really very sick. That can happen by deliberate, but more likely, Mike, it would happen as a natural occurrence. And that's the reason why the same preparations that we make for a pandemic influenza is very much closely allied to the preparations that we make for deliberate release of a microbe because the kinds of responses, the kinds of science and public health responses are really essentially the same yeah. for that. Great. So let's un- let's spend the rest of the time unpacking this, right? So maybe the place to start is with some definitions and some context. So epidemics and pandemics. Okay. What do they mean? What's the difference? Okay, so an epidemic is an outbreak of a disease that goes above a certain threshold of what the level of disease is in the community generally. So they have what's called an epidemic threshold. Like right now, we are not in a flu season right here in the Western Hemisphere. When we get to December, January, and February, virtually every year we have a seasonal outbreak that goes above the epidemic threshold. So you would say we're having sort of an epidemic in the United States that localized. A pandemic means it's widely spread throughout the world. So you could have an epidemic of, a, of an outbreak of West Nile here. You could have an outbreak of influenza. You could have an outbreak of whatever disease. But when you have something that's global, like HIV, so when we refer to HIV, that is truly a pandemic. And how wide does that have to be? You know, it, it, it's it kind of nebulous in the strict kind definition. Of know it when you see it. Yeah, it's one of those things that you don't <laughs> go yeah. back to that. Like, I'll yeah, know it yeah, when, yeah. when I see it. But every once in a while, we have an influenza pandemic. And that is an outbreak that rages throughout the world because it's a strain that we have really never experienced before. So it really is, you know, getting back to the Latin, the Latin word pan means all. Everything. Epi means in a certain small constrictor. I can see how the classics yeah. helped you in, in <laughs> medical school. <laughs> it helped me a little bit. It did. So how often do pandemics happen? Okay. So if you look in recorded history, they probably have been occurring ever since mankind. But when we had the ability to determine what it was, the first recorded in the sense of documented one was the massive pandemic of 1918, which was the worst in recorded history, the famous Spanish flu, as they called it, inappropriately calling it Spanish flu, but they called it Spanish flu. Anywhere from 50 to 100 million people throughout the world died in a population back in 1918, which is one third of what the population is today. The next one was in 1957. The next one was in 1968. And we had one in the 21st century was the 2009 swine flu H1N1 that we had. So we've had four that we've known with, but 
prior to that, there likely were many that were not recognized as pandemics because we didn't even know what a virus was. So are there any trends there? No, there are not. And that's a good point because there were some people who try to say, well, we have a cycle. There is no cycle. It just happens, you know, randomly. Everybody thought that, well, if it was in 1918 and then the next one was 1957, that was about 40 years later. So we'd have to wait 40 years for the next one. Oops, the next one was 1968 which was 11 years later. So then how often do epidemics happen? I would assume all the time. Well, with influenza, influenza is a very special virus because we have an outbreak of influenza virtually every winter. And in the Southern Hemisphere, like in Australia and in Argentina, they have it during their winter, which is our summer. So at any time of the year, there is an outbreak of influenza occurring somewhere. But are there other epidemics in, yes. in place right now? Yes, absolutely. The outbreak that we in West Africa, in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea in 2014, there was a very tragic epidemic of Ebola. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're having a mini outbreak, maybe not quite yet designated as an epidemic in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But the 2014-15 outbreak of Ebola was clearly an epidemic. And any trends with regard to epidemics? And the reason I ask, because at least to the generalist, there seems to be an increase in the frequency and diversity of disease outbreaks. Is that right? You're correct, Mike. It is. There are a couple of things. One, we're recognizing it more, but that's not just it. They're actually occurring. One of the things that is involved in that is the ease and frequency of travel. So you may have a group of people who get infected with an unusual microbe in one part of the world, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, the travel was not as easy. But right now, if you look, and and I show this in a slide when I give a lecture, if you show the flights that occur on every single day, the world is totally connected. I mean, it's just the thousands and thousands of flights. So if something breaks out in Indonesia, you're 18 hours away by flight of bringing it here. So those kinds of out those kinds of connectivity geographically. The other thing is that we continually encroach on the environment. For example, there are diseases among non-human primates that live in rainforests and areas. Once you start pushing in for getting lumber and whatever you do, mining, etc., when you push into the environment, you expose man to things they wouldn't commonly be exposed to. And that's exactly, you know, AIDS broke out from jumping from a chimpanzee to a human. And then it started to spread from human to human. And all of a sudden we had one of the worst pandemics in history, merely because something jumped from an animal to a human. And are there other factors there? Does climate change play a role here? You know, there isn't definitive indication that it does, but there are certain things that you can make a reasonable assumption that it will have an impact. And that is the range of vectors, particularly mosquitoes. So mosquitoes, particularly in temperate climates, what they do is that they overwinter or die over the winter so that you can interrupt a vector-borne infection when you have a temperate climate. It's more difficult to do when you're in the tropics. But also, if you increase the temperature so that the range and the time that mosquitoes flourish are greater, you increase the chance of having vector-borne infection. So in that respect, 
it likely does have an indirect impact. Population growth, urbanization. Uh, all of that. All, all of that. that. All of that it's plays all, a role here. all the stuff. It's mm. travel, population, encroachment on the environment. Well, what about the resistance to antibiotics? Is well, that part resistance of the story? Yes. Is that different? No, no. It, it, it is one of those things that we do as a human species that prop, helps to propagate outbreaks of new infections. Most people don't think of antimicrobial resistance as a outbreak of some sort. Technically, in some respects, it is. So if you inappropriately use antibiotics, you will foster the evolution of antibiotic resistance. If you use antibiotics indiscriminately in animals to foster their growth as opposed to treat an illness, you can build up a, a background of resistant microbes that the humans can then get exposed to. So um, are we doing any better on that front? We are. Uh, and, and let me tell you, we are because we are, well, first, first of all, we certainly are trying. We're doing a bit better, but not nearly as well as we should be doing. We're now in hospitals having much stricter oversight of using certain antibiotics in certain circumstances. We have surveillance in hospitals so that you see and detect a resistant microbe sooner than we did before so that it doesn't spread to other patients. The FDA has now been working with many of the agricultural firms about encouraging, if not mandating, that they don't use as much antibiotics as they do in the feed. So for the layman, you know, for me, I wonder why can't the pace of development of new antibiotics, you know, solve this problem? Okay, so... The approach to antibiotic resistance is maybe five or six factors. I've named a few of them. Better surveillance, better stewardship of antibiotic usage, not using it in inappropriate ways. One of them is the development of new antibiotics. We have a problem with the development of new antibiotics. We at NIH can do the fundamental science that is the first part on the pathway to a new product. But pharmaceutical companies don't see antibiotics as a big winner for them economically for a variety of reasons. They would much rather, and it's understandable, unfortunate, but understandable, that they would rather make that $750 million to $1 billion investment that you have to make per development of a single intervention like a drug for something that's a blockbuster, something that people throughout the world would use on a daily basis. Antibiotics are given to relatively few people over usually a 10-day to two-week course. Once they're used for a period of time, sooner or later, resistance gets developed, and therefore your product is not as hot as it was before. So from an economic standpoint, it doesn't make good sense for them to put a lot of money in that. They'd rather invest gotcha. in other things. Gotcha. Are superbugs in this category of drug-resistant microbes? Well, uh, superbugs is almost, you know, interchangeable for, for drug resistance. Okay. Whenever you see the, the cover of Time or Newsweek, when they say superbug, they're really talking about something like a, a resistant staphylococcus or that gram-negative bug that has been in hospitals with that big name like Enterobacteriaceae, where you can get resistant 
to virtually any antibiotic. Are more people dying from those yes. things today than yes. in the well, past? Or? Yes, they are. They are. There, there are about, in the United States, there are about 23,000 deaths due to antibiotic resistance, where someone would come in with an infection that you just can't adequately treat. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with more of our September 2018 discussion with Dr. Fauci. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Okay, so back to pandemics. A couple of questions. How does an epidemic become a pandemic? And maybe we've talked about this a little bit already. And then even more importantly, what would have to happen for a pandemic to become a true global emergency? A pandemic, in my mind, is by definition a global emergency. But of the kind that kills, you know, a million people or or of the Spanish flu variety. Well, it depends because there are two things that are important in making that determination. One is the rate of spread, which is called the infectivity of it, the transmissibility. And the other is how easy it is is for me to give it to you. Exactly. And then there's another thing. And that's thing. why you talked about the respiratory. Right, because uh, it's pretty easy to do that, yeah. either through aerosol or through droplets. The other factor is that point that I mentioned when I said morbidity, and that is usually referred to a terminology called the virulence of the microbe. Let's say it's a virus. How virulent is it? How sick does it make you? The one in 1918 was very virulent, and it made people very sick and killed a lot of people. The epidemic, the pandemic that we had in 2009 although it had the characteristic of rapidly spreading throughout the world, it wasn't a particularly virulent virus. So it didn't kill a lot of people so at all. you need all. both of those you things. You need both of those things together. To come together. Yes. So could, could a 1918 type of pandemic with the consequences, could that happen again? It certainly can. And that's the reason why we are putting a lot of effort into developing what you call a universal influenza vaccine, namely one that would be good against any strain of influenza. The reason why influenza is so problematic is that it's a virus that has the extraordinary capability of easily mutating and changing just enough so that you need to get a vaccine virtually every year. That's the reason why, unlike any of the other diseases that we worry about, you say you got to get your flu shot every year. You don't say you have to get a measles shot every year. You don't have to say you get a mump shot every year. But flu, you do because it changes where those other viruses don't. If we could get a vaccine that would be inducing a response against anything that that virus can do to run away from you, then we wouldn't have so to worry about So this is the so-called pandemics. universal Exactly. And, that, and that's what we're putting against, a universal influenza vaccine, namely a vaccine that induces a response against that part of the influenza virus that doesn't change a lot, that stays the same no matter what the strain is, whether it's a seasonal strain or a pandemic strain. We're putting a lot of effort into that. And what is that research? I mean, does that, are you optimistic about that or is it? You know, I am. I don't think that we're going to get a single vaccine that's going to be universal against everything, but I think we're going to be able to, I would predict over the next five to 10 years, to get vaccines against influenza that instead of just being against the given strain of that season will be one that goes over strains that evolve over multiple seasons. And if we're really successful, which I hope we will be, I'm cautiously optimistic, 
we'll have one that would be protective enough so that even when you do get a brand new virus, it will not have nearly as much of an impact as a true pandemic influenza would have. So if I'm doing my math right, you said 50 to 100 million Right. In 1918. That's 150 to 300. 300 million today. That's an incredibly large number. You bet. Yeah. Yeah. With incredible consequences, right? So so the work on universal vaccines, some of the other things you mentioned, what else is being done, right, as at NIH or elsewhere to help deal with all these things that we've talked about? Well... One of the things that we now have a lot of good tools, because we have now 37 years of investment, is on HIV-AIDS. Because when I began seeing AIDS patients in the very early 1980s, we had no tools, and it was a terribly tragic and, and, and the, the dark years of my, of my medical life, where every patient that I took care of would die from this dreadful disease. We now have extraordinarily good therapies that if you give it to a person, you could essentially tell them that they have almost normal lifespan. We also have very good preventions where you can give someone who's at risk something we call pre-exposure prophylaxis so that it dramatically decreases the likelihood that they would be infected. If we implemented all of those tools now, and that's the reason why we need to put a full court press on getting to that group of people in the United States who are at highest risk. It's very interesting that if you look at the map of the United States, about 52% of all of the new infections are located in around 40 counties in the United States, usually in the southern part of the country, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, et cetera. We need to implement that. So we're working on better ways to get people on therapy. Are there cultural constraints to that, well, or economic? It, or? It, it, it's, it's a combination of things. It, it's sad and something that we really need to address. In the United States, 12% of the population is African-American, yet more than 50% of the new infections are among African-American, mostly African-American men who have sex with men. So those are a group that are stigmatized against. Those are a group that are often disenfranchised. We've got to get rid of that stigma and get out and be able to offer them the kinds of treatment and prevention. The other thing that we're working very aggressively on is the development of an HIV vaccine. If we get a vaccine, which will be very tough because HIV is an unusually difficult vaccine, a virus to make a vaccine against. But if we do that, that would be the nail in the coffin of HIV. So one of the things that we're all striving for, we're striving for it globally, because globally you still have 1 million deaths a year, 1.8 million new infections. There are 36 million people living with HIV. Globally, it's still a big problem. In the United States, we need to put a full court effort to end this epidemic because it still is an epidemic in the United States. Do you have the resources that you need to do You know, the work? We, we have been fortunate, Mike, that we, we have had a good deal of generosity on the part of bipartisan approach to the NIH. We've gone through multiple administrations in which we've had support up and down the line, no matter who was the chairs of the Appropriation Committee, whether it was a Democrat or a Republican. So we've done well. So the NIH is well-funded. When you're talking about research, we could always use more. So I'm not saying, oh, we have enough, don't worry about us. I saw I used to answer the question about the CIA budget. Of of course, I mean, (laughs) the same talking points. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But we have been well-treated. Right now, we have an appropriations committees on the Senate and the House side that look very favorably upon the NIH. So, so jumping backwards for just a second, why 
again from layman's question, why is the timeline so long on vaccines? Why does it take so long once you've identified the particular strain to produce a vaccine? Great question. And, and it's easy to explain if you compare it to a therapy because testing a drug and determining if a drug works is much quicker than determining if a vaccine works because you're giving a drug to a sick person mm. and you only would give it to a sick person. So you will know pretty quickly whether it works or not. Whereas a vaccine is given to prevent an infection. So you have to give it to a very large number of normal well people and wait to see if when the outbreak occurs, it protects them or not. And often it takes multiple years to do that in order to get enough data to be able to statistically say, that this vaccine, when compared to a placebo or nothing, that this vaccine actually protects against this particular microbe in question. And since you're giving it to thousands and thousands of people in order to determine that, that takes a long period of time. And one of the very important issues with vaccines is safety because you're giving it to normal people. So you've got to definitively prove that not only does it work, but that it's safe. And that just takes a very long period of time. Right. You mentioned earlier this distinction between naturally occurring pathogens and then those that are where a human would play a role in some way, right? right? And I guess there's, there's two possibilities there. One is the release of something that is hidden away in a lab somewhere, like, right. like smallpox, right. or something man-made. How do you think about that threat how worried are you about that, right. et cetera? Well, as an infectious disease and public health person, I'm concerned about both of those. But I can tell you purely from what we've experienced and the statistical history that we see, I worry more about naturally occurring pandemic of a respiratory virus than I do about someone deliberately releasing something. That does not mean that we don't address the threat of a deliberate release because right after 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, which would juxtapose the next month in October after September the 11th, we put a very, very aggressive full court press on developing countermeasures against the select category A agents that we knew definitively that the Soviet Union had stockpiled before the fall of the Soviet Union. And those what we call category A, smallpox, anthrax, tularemia, botulism, plague, and the hemorrhagic fevers. And we started to develop better countermeasures against each of those and put it into the strategic national stockpile. Now, if there is a kind of an attack, either naturally or deliberately, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be one of those. And that's the reason why you've got to prepare your technologies to be able to respond rapidly so that if you see something, it doesn't take a year to develop it. You can essentially develop it right away. What about a man-made pathogen? Is that possible? You know, it's possible, but it would have to be the man making a pathogen that is a pathogen that already exists, but you engineer it a bit to be maybe more transmissible or more lethal. And you, you, would, you would have to have considerable expertise. Well, you'd have to have considerable expertise and you'd have to be pretty lucky because it isn't the easiest thing in the world to do that. And that's the reason why I always say with the caveat that I pay a lot of attention to the possibility of deliberately released microbes, that nature 
because of its extraordinary ability to evolve microbes, nature is potentially the worst bioterrorist for us. Right. So, Dr. Fauci, you've been incredibly generous with your time. And I just want to ask you one more question. And what I'm really interested in at the end of the day is knowing whether you are optimistic about the future or pessimistic or maybe just realistic, right? right. You know, there, we've talked a lot about trends taking us in the wrong direction, but you've also talked about a lot of good work that's right. being done. How does it balance out at okay. the end of the day for you? Okay, so I, I think I could characterize myself, Mike, as being a realist who's cautiously optimistic. Okay. <laughs> How about that for, okay. for tangling that? And the reason I say that is that the, the technologies that we have now, the, the scientific capabilities are, are absolutely breathtaking. You know, and we have a lot of very bright people here in our own country, certainly, we have opportunities in science. We have technologies that we didn't even dream of. When I first got involved in science and medicine, the things that we did, I thought at the time, were highly sophisticated. It's amateurish now compared to what we can do now. I mean, the, for example, to sequence a brand new virus that you discover, that means get the total genomic alphabet of it, the total genomic profile. It would take a year or more now we can do it overnight. Mm. I mean, th th it's sort of like the days of the computers that were in a big room, and now you have a computer that's on your wristwatch. It's, yeah. it's the same sort of thing. All of the technology of science now arms us very well. The only trouble is we have to keep up and we have to keep going. We've got to keep getting better and better. So it's one of those things where you look and you're in awe of the science that what we have but you can't be complacent because there's so much more to learn and so much more to do. And how do you think about what you all do at NIH with what's being done in private sector startups with regard to this kind of thing? Yeah, there's a lot of synergy there because what the NIH does that no other entity does is that we are the largest funder of fundamental basic research. So startup companies, which are generally manned by brilliant young people who really do extraordinary things. They're clustered things. around universities no, for a reason. They, they <laughs> are, they are. They draw upon the fundamental basic research discoveries that scientists who are not necessarily associated with any startup company, and they brilliantly use that knowledge to develop a new tool. We partner with those biotech companies by collaborating with them by scientifically exchanging information and when then a product occurs we also do translational research so we have two hats we have fundamental basic research and we do translational research for example all of the drugs that were developed for hiv that have now made it essentially a manageable disease the fundamental basic concept that led to the drugs was at the nih the translation of that to a product was the pharmaceutical company. The proving that it actually worked by clinical trials in large cohorts of individuals was funded predominantly by the NIH. So it's a tremendous and I think beautiful synergy. Yeah. And I would between, imagine more and more of it all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a wonderful synergy between the public sector, namely the U.S. government, the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, and the private sector and the pharmaceutical companies. Any idea on how bad this flu season will be? Well, um, 
there's a saying among infectious diseases that the one thing you can definitely predict about influenza is that it's unpredictable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but there is something that is important. We have our colleagues in Australia who are now going through their flu season because it's our summer, but it's their winter. And they're having a relatively light season so far. That doesn't mean we're going to be complacent. But is there typically hoping, a correlation? Yeah, generally. Remember last year, the Australians had a really bad season and we got hit with the worst season that we'd had in the previous 10 or 12 years. So it isn't always correlated, but generally you can get a hint of what you're going to get when you see gotcha. what happens in the gotcha. Southern Hemisphere. Gotcha. Well, thank you for being with us. It's great to see you. My pleasure, Mike. Good to be with you. Thank you, Dr. Fauci. That was an interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci from the fall of 2018. As I re-listened to that episode, and as I have watched Dr. Fauci do his job over the last several weeks, I have been struck by three things. First, the importance of expertise. Dr. Fauci has essentially been preparing for this moment his entire career. His experience today is informing policy, and it is informing Americans on the seriousness of our situation. Second, the importance of his demeanor. Dr. Fauci is calm. He does not overstate things, nor does he understate them. He also demonstrates great humility and deep care for his patients, which in the current situation is the entire population of our country. It's probably these personality traits, I think, more than even his expertise that lead people to listen to him and to trust him. And third, there's the issue of speaking truth to power. This stands out to me because it is a core value, not only of scientists, but also of intelligence officers. And Dr. Fauci has displayed this core value of his profession day after day after day during this crisis. He has even corrected the president sitting next to him in a conference room and standing next to him on a podium. I'm sure he'll continue to do so. Let's hope the president continues to listen to him. Putting all this together makes me wonder if there might be some good that comes out of all of this. Perhaps, just perhaps, Dr. Fauci's lead role in the current situation and his approach to his job will help resurrect the importance of expertise and the importance of speaking truth in our society, both of which have been so battered by our partisan politics. I hope you enjoyed this best of episode of Intelligence Matters. Please join us next week. I'm Michael Morrell. This has been the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.